As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello again, my fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. I hope you're all doing well out there. I hope you're all successfully writing out those brief moments of turbulence that inevitably show up in our lives from time to time. It's 2020, a new year is upon us, and I hope you're all taking advantage of this clean slate by working hard and enjoying life. This is episode 15 of the Plane Crash Podcast, and for numero quince, we're going to be taking a look at Iran Air Flight 655, a scheduled flight from the city of Bandar Abbas in Iran to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates on July 3rd, 1988. Thank you to all of you out there that have been listening and supporting the Plane Crash Podcast. Thanks for all the reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts and the various podcasting sites. This is the part of the show where I shamelessly beg for reviews, so please know that my hand is currently outstretched, and I have a slight expectation, a glimmer of hope in my eye, that in the near future, you might write us a nice review on whatever site you're listening to the show on, as a small token of your appreciation and approval of the show. If you want to give us a shout on Twitter, our Twitter handle is PlaneCrashPod, that's PlaneCrashPod, follow us and say what's up. Joining us today on episode 15 of PCPC is a guest that needs no introduction, but it's going to get one anyways. 
She's the producer of the podcast, writer, painter, all-around quality human being, Miss Tess Andrade. Say hello to the fellow human beings on planet Earth, Tess. Hello, fellow human beings. Thank you, Michael, for having me. Thanks for being on the podcast again. So you've been painting a lot of pictures of eggplants lately, eh? (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can't believe you're bringing that up. Why Um, eggplants? Why eggplants? Well, I am doing a study of the eggplant. I am taking an art class and one of the assignments was to paint an eggplant in as many ways as possible. So that's what I've been doing. You're doing doing it. You're doing that art class. You're furthering your (laughs) skill set. That's pretty cool. So Oscar season's upon us. Have you seen any movies this past year that you really liked? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of movies that I've loved. Um, Let's see. I I really liked Joker. Mm -hmm. I liked Jojo Rabbit. I liked that one too. That was a really good one. Um, And actually, kind of an underrated one, Uncut Gems. I haven't seen that. I need to see that. I really liked Marriage Story. Mm, I really didn't expect that I would like it. Like I saw the trailer and I was like, not my film. But after watching it, I really enjoyed it. I liked the internal character development, thought there were some great acting performances. Plus, it just made me feel like it was 1985. Like, I feel like that film could have come out in 1985. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It just seemed like yeah. a quality piece of art. Yeah, it's kind of a slow burn, that one, but it, it you, you absorb it. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, one thing I've been thinking about recently in regards to commercial aviation is that it seems like meals on planes have basically gone away, unless you're flying internationally. How do you feel about that, Tess? Are you happy that most airlines now just offer snacks and a couple rounds of drink service? Or do you miss the old days when you used to get a full hot meal? I have to say I don't really miss the hot meal. I'm, uh, I've never, I don't have the fondest memories of those meals. So yeah. I'm happy to uh, just partake in the snacks and the drinks. Oh, snacks and drinks, girl. Mm-hmm, that's me. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of you know positives and negatives to offering meals on a plane. Like one general positive thing is when you're flying, let's face it, we're all kind of bored. We're looking for things that are going to help pass the time. I feel right. like... Sudoku... Yeah, you can read a book, you can talk to a neighbor, you can watch a movie, you can sleep. And I feel like uh, meals just tie up some time. It gives people something to do, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, it's an activity. Yeah, I like that. I think it's also an opportunity for maybe an airline to differentiate itself from its competitors. You know, if you offer people a quality meal and they have a great meal and a great time they're gonna associate that great meal with the airline i think that's a good thing yeah weren't you telling me that alaska airlines has the healthiest grade of meal yeah and i I think when they evaluated that they're probably evaluating the snacks they Mm, offer you know the cheese plate or whatever there's got to be a lot of negatives too i understand you know that's just more stuff you got to put on the plane it's probably hard to keep food hot it's you know probably requires you to hire more of a kitchen staff at each mm-hmm. airport but i think a passenger's been recently fed they're going to be less cranky probably better for flight attendants to deal with yeah who doesn't like free stuff you know yeah i even think hey charge us a little bit more give us a meal give us something to do and uh, i like this shared social interaction of we all ate a meal together how was the food what did you yeah. get i got the chicken parm sweet that's true i'm coming around to you michael i kind of like when there are sort of phases of a flight yeah you get breakfast lunch maybe even dinner <laughs> especially on like a 45 minute flight <laughs> yeah three, exactly three meals one <laughs> meal every 15 minutes one, yeah <laughs> I just want to give everybody a heads up that today's episode has a lot of history, some political talk, 
It's not that heavy on the aviation side of things. I still find it interesting, though, and I think a lot of you will find it interesting. Yeah, I hope so. I, on the other hand, am going to excuse myself because I'm here for the aviation. <laughs> yeah, Tess, Tess will find this to be quite the snore. <laughs> snore fest. Well, I like to mention at the top of every episode that I'm new to the world of aviation. I'm no expert by any means. I'm not a pilot or an aviation student. I just noticed a few years ago that I was getting abnormally nervous about flying. And this podcast serves as an anxiety exposure therapy of sorts. My hope is that the more we learn about crashes of the past, the more we'll realize how many changes were instituted along the way with each crash to make flying safer for all of us today. We realize that each accident we discuss is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there. Somebody's brother or sister, mother or father died, and we don't want to be inconsiderate or disrespectful of that fact. We just find plane accidents to be historical events worth discussing. It's interesting to realize how all these crashes of the past helped build air travel into the extremely safe system that exists today. You ready to get started, Tess? I'm ready. Iran Air Flight 655 was a scheduled flight from Bandar Abbas International Airport in the port city of Bandar Abbas in Iran to Dubai International in the city of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates on the morning of July 3rd, 1988. The plane was an Airbus A300B2203. This model from Airbus was first released to the commercial airline market in 1976. This particular plane used for Flight 655 was manufactured by Airbus in March of 1982. The plane was registered to the Islamic Republic of Iran and delivered to Iran Air in 1982. So the plane at the time of the incident was roughly six years old. The plane had 11,497 hours of flying time in its history. The captain of Iran Air Flight 655 was Captain Mohsen Razayan. He was 38 years old at the time of the flight. He had over 7,000 flight hours, 2,057 hours flying Airbus A300s. In addition to having his rating to fly Airbus A300s, which he received in 1985, he was also rated to fly Boeing 737s and 747s. Captain Rezaian was certified as a captain of Boeing 737s on May 2nd, 1983. Over the prior 10 weeks before Flight 655, Captain Rezaian had flown over the Persian Gulf seven times. Three times he had flown the Tehran to Shiraz to Dubai route. Four times he had flown the Tehran to Bandar Abbas to Dubai route. Three days before Flight 655, Captain Rezaian had flown the same route Flight 655 was on, the Bandar Abbas to Dubai trek. In the 1970s, Captain Rezaian lived in Texas. He had three children, two daughters, age five and three at the time, and a two-year-old son, His wife was an Iran Air flight attendant that he met through working at the airline. She was not on Flight 655. His eldest daughter was born in the United States when the captain and his wife were visiting Oklahoma, and apparently she used to proudly brag to her younger siblings and say, I'm the American, because she had dual citizenship and they did not. The co-pilot was a 31-year-old male with 2,200 flight hours, 708 hours flying Airbus A300s, He was issued his rating as a co-pilot of Airbus A300s in July of 1987. He was also rated as a co-pilot for Boeing 737s. He had flown five times over the Persian Gulf via the Tehran to Shiraz to Dubai route. The flight engineer for Flight 655 was a 33-year-old male with 2,800 flight hours, 736 on Airbus A300s. 
He had flown over the Persian Gulf four times via the Tehran to Shiraz to Dubai route, and he was rated as a flight engineer on both Airbus A300s and Boeing 737s. There were 13 cabin crew members and the three men in the cockpit for a total flight crew of 16. All 16 members of the flight crew were Iranian citizens. Iran Air Flight 655 had 274 passengers, 238 Iranians, 10 Indians, 1 Italian, 6 Pakistanis, 6 Yugoslavians, and 13 citizens of the United Arab Emirates. So 274 passengers, flight crew of 16, for a total of 290 human beings on board. Iran Air Flight 655 was the second of four scheduled flights for this aircraft and this flight crew on July 3rd, 1988. Flight 1 was from Tehran to Bandar Abbas. Flight 2 was Iran Air Flight 655 from Bandar Abbas to Dubai. Flight 3 was scheduled to be a flight from Dubai back to Bandar Abbas. And Flight 4 was scheduled to be Bandar Abbas back to Tehran. So the flight crew shows up at Marabad International Airport in Tehran at 5.30 a.m., an hour and a half before the first of their four flights for July 3rd. The first flight was Iran Air Flight 451, Takes off from Tehran to Bandar Abbas at 7.12 a.m. It's a smooth flight, no issues at all, and the plane lands safely just under an hour and a half at Bandar Abbas International at 8.40 a.m. The flight crew stays on the plane while some passengers disembarked at Bandar Abbas. New passengers in Bandar Abbas board the plane for the second flight of the day for the flight crew, Flight 655, a scheduled 55-minute flight, gate-to-gate, to Dubai International. Iran Air Flight 655 was scheduled to take off at 9.50 a.m. from Bandar Abbas, but there's an issue. A passenger has a problem with their visa, which ended up delaying Flight 65 for 27 minutes. Finally, at 10.17 a.m., after the almost half-hour delay, Flight 655 is cleared for takeoff, ready for the short flight across the Persian Gulf to Dubai. Now, before Flight 655 takes off, I think it's important that we take a step back and look at the history of Iran in the 20th century so we can better understand what friendly or not-so-friendly skies Iran Air Flight 655 is about to attempt to fly through in early July of 1988. At the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the country that we know today as Iran was called by a different name back then. It was known as Persia. And in the early 1900s, the ruling family in Persia were the Qajars. The Qajar dynasty controlled Persia from 1794 to 1925. The Shah, or basically King of Iran from 1794 to 1925, was part of this Qajar family. Well, in the 1900s, the Persian people are getting fed up with living under the rule of the Qajar family. The Shah at the time, Muzaffir ad-Din Shah Qajar, lived an extravagant lifestyle at the expense of the Persian people. He goes on a royal tour of Europe and takes out massive loans from the Russians to pay for his lengthy vacation. Then he comes home and starts charging the merchant class of Persia taxes to pay off his Russian loans for his European trip and overall luxurious life. There's this perception that he's taking resources from Persia, selling them to and giving influence to foreign powers like Russia and Britain, not doing much to improve the infrastructure and lives of ordinary Persians. He's just kind of financing his own cushy lifestyle. Needless to say, the merchant class of Persia is pissed. 
They want improvements in their lives. They don't want to pay taxes so the Shah can chill in his palace and have an extended holiday in Europe. In early 1906, following a period of protests in Tehran, there's a constitutional revolution where the Shah finally gives in and allows a parliament to be formed. The government has changed, so now there will be an election. Ordinary Persians can finally have a say in their government, and power will be shared between the Shah and the people of Persia in this parliament. So this establishes a pattern we're going to see again and again in Persia or Iran. There's a Shah that's living this opulent lifestyle. He's reliant on foreign powers that he can sell his country's resources to in order to enrich himself. Because these foreign powers are his number one customers, he allows them a lot of influence and say in his country's affairs. And the Persian working people eventually get angry over the lack of economic opportunity and foreign countries interfering in their government. Protests break out in the street and calls for revolution ensue. In 1907, a year after the Persians had this revolution where the merchant class finally thinks they're going to get to have a say in their government... Russia and Britain hold a convention in St. Petersburg, Russia, and decide to divide Persia up into two spheres of influence. Russia gets to the north section of Persia. There's a buffer or a neutral zone in the middle, and Britain gets the south. Neither Britain nor Russia consults anyone in Persia to see if they're okay with this arrangement. This is important because it kind of contributes to the anti-Western mentality of Persians that exist to this day, that no one respects them. Persians must have been like, what the hell's going on? Here we just had months of protests, finally get a concession from the Shah to form a parliament, and we're excited to finally get to pass our own laws, run our own lives, and then two massive world powers, Russia and Britain, carve up our country, and they don't even invite a Persian person to this party to see if we're cool with any of this. A year later, in 1908... Massive deposits of petroleum were discovered in Persia, and the Anglo-Persian Oil Company was founded. This company eventually becomes BP, or British Petroleum. We're all pretty familiar with BP. In 1914, the British government purchases 51% of the shares of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which essentially meant that the company that was pulling all the oil out of the ground in Persia was owned and operated by the British government. This further inspired anti-Western sentiment amongst the merchant class. Foreign nations are getting rich and developing their economies off of Persian resources. In 1925, the Qajar dynasty in Persia comes to an end. Reza Pahlavi becomes the new Shah of Persia from 1925 to 1941. During his rule, he oversees a vast modernization of the country. He thinks that on the foreign stage, Persia is perceived as this backward country, so he sinks a lot of money into developing Persia's infrastructure. The first university in Persia, University of Tehran, is established. Highways, factories, railways are all built under his reign. He outlawed photographs of camels, and he promoted modern dress, trying to westernize Persian society. In 1935, Reza Shah asked the League of Nations to refer to Persia in the future as Iran, which Western nations have done ever since. In the years before World War II, Iran and Nazi Germany became close trading partners. In Iran's eyes, Germany was an attractive economic partner as a counterbalance to British and Russian influence, and also because Germany had never had imperialistic ambitions over Iran in the past. 
As Germany experienced success at the beginning of World War II, Britain and Russia became nervous that Iran would join forces with the Axis powers and give Nazi Germany access to their oil fields. So in 1941, Allied forces invaded and occupied Iran. Reza Shah was forced to step down and allow his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, to take over as the new Shah of Iran, a position he would hold until 1979. Mohammad Reza Shah was seen as much easier to influence and control by the Western powers compared to his father. While in retrospect, most people in the world are happy that the oil fields of Iran were denied to Nazi forces by the Allied invasion of Iran, this event further contributes to Iranians' viewpoint that Western powers see Iran as simply a pawn that could be manipulated or taken over whenever necessary. So the new Shah, the son, Mohammad Reza Shah, starts his rule in 1941, but he doesn't really have any power until after the Russian occupation from World War II ends in 1946. From 1946 to 1951, he presides over a period of instability for the Iranian government. A new prime minister is named almost every year until 1951. The leader of the two-day or communist party in Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, is democratically elected as the new prime minister. And Mossadegh convinces the Iranian parliament to cancel the contract that BP had with Iran to export oil out of the country, effectively nationalizing the oil industry. So now Britain is pissed about this because they've been used to making a ton of money and having a ton of influence in the Middle East by having access to trillions of dollars of oil in the ground in Iran. Prime Minister of the UK, Winston Churchill, asked the Truman administration in the U.S. if they'd be interested in a joint effort to promote a coup to take Mossadegh out of power, but the Truman administration wasn't interested. Two years later in 1953, and this is where the Americans enter this tangled web for the first time, the CIA under the Eisenhower administration, jointly with MI6 from the U.K., support a coup in Iran to take down the democratically elected Mossadegh. CIA operatives posed as genuine Iranians, and they threatened Iranian Muslim leaders with savage punishment if they opposed Mossadegh, which, just as the CIA wanted, made the Muslim leaders in Iran want to see Mossadegh fail, because Mossadegh appeared to them to be cracking down on anyone that disagreed with him. Mossadegh was also the leader of the Communist Party in Iran, and the Shia clergy and Iranian Muslim leaders were already wary of supporting a communist leader due to communism's hostility towards religion in the past. So a bunch of CIA and MI6-fueled protests break out in the country, and eventually Mossadegh is arrested and thrown in jail for three years. This whole CIA-MI6 joint effort is known as Operation Ajax. That seems like a prime example of manipulation. They're literally just going in there and being like, hey, have you heard the rumors? This guy really wants to crack the whip on us. How annoying is that? After Mossadegh is taken out of power, the U.S. agrees to give Mohammad Reza Shah money to run the Iranian government. And in exchange, the Shah lets American and British oil companies back into Iran to get the spigot turned back on and get this Iranian oil pumping out of the ground again. Again, this is another example of foreign powers kind of having their way with the Iranian government. In the late 50s and 60s, Mohammad Reza Shah presides over a long period of modernization for the country of Iran, just like his father did. Lots of schools are built. There's profits rolling in from the booming oil industry. 
and these are reinvested into Iranian roads and infrastructure. Women in Iran are experiencing radical social change. They're allowed to vote and can hold offices, become judges. The entire country is becoming more westernized. Many in Iran welcome this change because they desire a higher standard of living and see joining the Western world as the avenue to getting there. But others, including the Shia clerics and conservative Iranians, see these changes as abandoning Islamic law. Also, the Shah has a secret police force called the Savak, and during the 1970s, the Shah and his police force are becoming increasingly oppressive. Political parties are banned. Many politicians that were critical of the Shah's policies are thrown in jail. The Shah is consolidating power, and the people of Iran are growing frustrated with their lack of a voice in their government. They're feeling as though the Shah is just concerned with enriching himself and enacting the will of the U.S. or the U.K., the countries that are bankrolling his fortune. In the late 1970s, uh, there's an economic downturn in Iran, and working-class Iranians are frustrated with their inability to find work while the Shah is worth a billion dollars, and he's giving interviews on television where he's seen as overconfident in his luxurious palace and oblivious to the plight of the common man in Iran. So the breaking point occurs in 1978, when protests start in the country. First, the protests are small, but the Shah's government overreacts and fires upon protesters, killing Iranians. This makes it so Iranians are even more angry and the protests grow, which are accompanied by more killings by the Shah-controlled Iranian government, which in turn just makes the next protest all the larger. The social unrest builds and builds, and finally on January 16, 1979, the Shah flees Iran, and he goes to Egypt. Ayatollah Khomeini, that was imprisoned for 18 months by the Shah, and then sent into exile for 14 years, returns to Iran on February 1, 1979. There's a short period of time that troops that still support the Shah battle rebel revolutionary fighters, but eventually the Iranian army declares itself neutral. And on April 1st, 1979, Iran becomes an Islamic Republic, which it has been to this present day. The exiled Shah suffered from a number of health issues and eventually ended up in New York to receive medical treatments. The Iranian people were very angry with the Shah and wanted him to be returned to Iran to face trial for all the killings that happened at the hands of the Savak, his secret police force. The U.S. refused Iranian demands that the Shah be turned over, and on November 4, 1979, a group of college students storms the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and holds 52 American citizens as hostages for the next 444 days. There was a failed rescue attempt by the U.S. where a helicopter crashes and eight U.S. servicemen are killed. The Iranian students wanted the return of the Shah, the release of Iranian money frozen by the U.S., the end of U.S. interference in Iran, and an apology for the 1953 coup. So while we got this hostage crisis taking place in 1980, Iran's neighbor, Iraq, decides that it's a great time to invade Iran. While there's a brand new leader, the Iranian army is distracted and unorganized, and the entire Western world considers Iran as an enemy due to the revolution and the hostage crisis. Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein had an eye on Iran's rich oil field and thought this was a prime time to strike. Scared that the U.S. might throw its weight behind Iraq on January 20, 1981, 
as a new president, Ronald Reagan, is being sworn into office, the Iranians released these hostages from the U.S. Embassy after the U.S. agreed not to interfere in future Iranian affairs and unfreeze Iranian assets. So now we're caught up to the 1980s. For eight long years in the 1980s, from 1980 to 1988, Iraq and Iran are at war. Iraq wants to take over the oil-rich southern Iranian lands with a huge Arab population. And once the war starts, Iran decides that maybe they can inspire an uprising in Iraq of the significant Shia population that resides there. Iraq's government is secular, and Iranians consider the religious Shia population in Iraq to be oppressed by this secular Iraqi regime. The Iranians think a similar Islamic revolution like they just had might be possible in Iraq. The initial invasion from Iraq catches the Iranians by surprise, and Iraq was able to substantially push into Iranian territory in the first year of the war. But Iran fiercely fights back, and by 1982 had pushed the Iraqi army back out of their country. So a long and bitter war ensues between Iraq and Iran. And this is bad news for the rest of the developed world that had grown so dependent on Iraqi and Iranian oil. Huge Iraqi and Iranian oil tankers would try and make their way out of the Persian Gulf to be sold on the open market. The problem is, the Iraqis don't want the Iranians to be able to sell their oil, because that money is going to be turned into bombs, bullets, and weapons that will be used against them in the war. On the other side, the Iranians don't want the Iraqis to be able to sell their oil either for the same reason. Oil is both countries' major export. If either country can sell their oil, that means just more financing for the weapons of war. So both the Iraqis and the Iranians start bombing each other's oil tankers in the Persian Gulf. During the war, the Iraqis thought to themselves, hey, the Iranians are going after our Iraqi tankers. Maybe we should disguise things a bit. Maybe we can use our ally Kuwait to export our oil. We'll give Kuwait our oil, and Kuwaiti tankers will go out on the Persian Gulf, and maybe the Iranians won't attack these Kuwaiti tankers because Iran's at war with us, Iraq, not Kuwait. Well, it was a nice thought and all, but the Iranians quickly caught on to the scheme and they start attacking Kuwaiti tankers and merchant ships. Soon, the entire developed world's oil supply chain is being threatened due to the Iraq-Iran war, And in 1987, the United States decides it's time to step in. The U.S. government, under Operation Earnest Will, sends the U.S. Navy over to the Persian Gulf to escort these Kuwaiti oil tankers safely through these dangerous waters out to open sea. Now, even though the last thing that Iran or Iraq wants is to fire upon the U.S. Navy and push the most powerful country in the world into joining the war and supporting their enemy— Interactions between Iran and Iraq and the U.S. Navy start occurring on the Persian Gulf. There's up to 30 American naval ships there in the area, part of this operation of the chaperoning of oil tankers and merchant ships. The first escort the U.S. Navy attempts in the Persian Gulf on July 24, 1987, is the escorting of a Kuwaiti oil tanker. And the Kuwaiti oil tanker runs into an Iranian mine in the Gulf. The tanker is badly damaged. There's no injuries, but this event quickly shows the Americans that the Iranians have mined many areas in the Gulf, and this isn't going to be an easy operation for them. In 1987, a U.S. ship, 
the USS Stark that's stationed in the Gulf was fired upon by an Iraqi jet. This Iraqi jet shoots two missiles at the USS Stark, which kills 37 American sailors and injures 21. The Iraqis said that they had mistaken the USS Stark for an Iranian tanker. Before the missiles were fired, the captain of the USS Stark, Captain Glenn Brindle, radioed over to the Iraqi jet requesting identification. Both calls go unanswered, and then the two missiles struck his ship. 37 Americans die, 21 are injured. In the fall of 1987, skirmishes broke out between small Iranian gunboats called bog hammers and U.S. Navy protected merchant convoys. The U.S. Navy caught Iranian ships laying mines in the Gulf, and in response to the harassment by the gunboats and the laying of mines by Iranians, the Americans attacked two Iranian oil platforms in the Gulf that were being used as converted military bases by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Another big event happens in April of 1988. A U.S. ship, the USS Samuel B. Roberts, strikes an Iranian-laid mine and 10 U.S. soldiers are injured. In response, the U.S., under Operation Praying Mantis, attacks a number of Iranian military ships, killing 56 Iranians, and blows up a couple of other Iranian oil platforms that were being used for military purposes, During Operation Praying Mantis, the U.S. Navy destroyed half of the Iranian Navy. So things are escalating in the Persian Gulf in the summer of 1988. One could argue that the Iranians and Americans are engaged in an undeclared war at sea with one another. Tensions are running high, and U.S. naval captains have all these events that occurred over the past year and a half in the back of their mind. Another event happens in the summer of 1988, where seven Iranian gunboats are spotted early one morning in the Persian Gulf, harassing a Pakistani merchant vessel. An American naval ship is crossing through the Strait of Hormuz, which is a narrow waterway that leads to the Persian Gulf, and a helicopter from this American ship is flying patrol above the Persian Gulf. The helicopter is investigating some of these Iranian gunboats or bog hammers on the water below them, when it's reported that Iranian gunboats start firing upon this helicopter called Ocean Lord. Ocean Lord reports back to its naval ship that they're being fired upon, and the American ship starts speeding towards these gunboats in pursuit. The Iranian gunboats flee the area and move back into Iranian territorial waters, but the American ship decides to steam ahead in pursuit of these gunboats that just had fired upon their helicopter. The American ship radios to a commander in the region in reference to these Iranian gunboats. They're not clearing the area. They show erratic speed and course changes over. Have a bog hammer closing my position. I repeat, closing my position over. The American commander in the region replies, take bog hammer groups with guns. I repeat, take bog hammer group with guns over. The American ship replies, opening fire with guns. So Iranians are firing on Americans, Americans are firing on Iranians, and in the middle of this tense gunfight at sea, the crew of the U.S. ship notices a little signal. A plane is taking off from a nearby Iranian airport that is used for military and commercial travel, and this signal comes from Iran Air Flight 655. This is the environment and conditions on the water of the Persian Gulf on the morning of July 3rd, 1988, that Iran Air Flight 655 is about to try and fly over. The American ship is the USS Vincennes under the command of Captain William Rogers III. 
On the morning of July 3rd, there are two more U.S. ships in close proximity, the USS Montgomery and the USS Sides. Air traffic control at Bandar Abbas clears Iran Air Flight 655 for takeoff and radios over, have a nice flight. Iran Air Flight 655 takes off from runway 21 at Bandar Abbas International at 10.17 a.m. and heads south towards the Persian Gulf on a heading of 206 degrees and en route to its destination of Dubai. Air traffic control tells the flight to squawk Mode 3 in IFF, Identification Friend or Foe, with code 6760 to identify itself as a civilian plane. Flight 655 is scheduled to fly down the A-59 air corridor, which is like a highway in the sky between Bandar Abbas and Dubai. Two minutes after takeoff, Flight 655 contacts Bandar Abbas air traffic control and notifies them that they had reached 3,500 feet on their way to their planned cruising altitude of 14,000 feet. On the USS Vincennes, the signal that they detect from the plane at Bandar Abbas right at takeoff is reported to Captain Will Rogers as a squawk in Mode 2 in IFF, which is reserved for military planes. A lot of accounts are disputed from this incident. We do know that Bandar Abbas International was being used for civilian and military purposes by Iran. In the days before Flight 655, it's reported that the Iranians moved a number of F-14 military aircraft to Bandar Abbas. Either the squawk the USS Vincennes had detected was in Mode 2 and was from a different plane, a military plane on the ground in Bandar Abbas, or a crew member on the USS Vincennes misread the information and incorrectly reported a Mode 2 squawk when it was actually a Mode 3 or civilian plane squawk. Two minutes after takeoff, the USS Vincennes starts issuing radio warnings over the military air distress frequency. Seven warnings were made over the military air distress frequency, and these warnings received no reply from Flight 655 because the civilian airliner wasn't monitoring military frequencies. Four minutes after takeoff, Flight 655 contacts Tehran Air Control Center, advising that the flight was now at 7,000 feet and headed towards 14,000 feet. The Tehran Air Control Center acknowledged this information from Flight 655 and asked Flight 655 to confirm that it was squawking in Mode 3 with code 6760, which would identify it as a civilian plane, and Flight 655 responds in the affirmative. On the water below, the USS Vincennes' attempts to warn Flight 655 on the military air distress frequency are going unanswered. The U.S. ship is still engaged with these Iranian gunboats on the Persian Gulf. And now they think that an Iranian F-14 that had reportedly squawked Mode 2 on the ground and isn't answering any of their radio warnings is headed right at them. The USS Vincennes tries to warn Flight 655 on the international air distress frequency of 121.5, but again gets no reply. The Vincennes made three attempts on the IAD frequency to contact Flight 655 and didn't receive any response. One interesting aspect of this is time and time again, the radio warning from the USS Vincennes is addressed to Iranian fighter or Iranian F-14. The pilots of Flight 655 either didn't hear the radio transmission, weren't monitoring the international air distress frequency that they were supposed to, Or when they heard Iranian fighter, they thought to themselves, hmm, they must be trying to reach someone else because I'm not an Iranian fighter, I'm an Iranian commercial pilot. At 10.24 a.m., seven minutes after takeoff, 
Flight 655 notifies Bandar Abbas Air Traffic Control that the plane was now passing through 12,000 feet, headed still towards 14,000. The tower at Bandar Abbas radios over to Flight 655, Have a nice day. And Captain Mohsen Razayan replies, Thank you. Good day. 30 seconds after this communication between Flight 655 and Bandar Abbas Radio Control, as Flight 655 moves closer and closer to the USS Vincennes and USS Montgomery, which is another ship close by, the Vincennes fires two surface-to-air missiles at Flight 655, one of which strikes the left wing of the Airbus 300A, tearing the wing off from the plane. The tail of the plane was also torn off from the rest of the fuselage. On the Vincennes, a U.S. sailor monitoring the radar shouts, Oh, dead. We had to have gotten it. That's a dead on to momentary cheers from the other sailors on the deck. Flight 655 falls to the Persian Gulf waters below and is destroyed upon impact. All 290 human beings on board Iran Air Flight 655 were killed. 66 of those 299 human beings were children. As you can imagine, this incident was the focus of the world in early July 1988. The same day of the event, July 3rd, the U.S. held a press conference, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Crow, gives a statement saying that the plane was flying towards the USS Vincennes in a threatening manner, not responding to any radio warnings from the American ship, and flying outside the normal air corridor for civilian air traffic. He said the U.S. government deeply regrets this incident, but no apology was made to the Iranians. The argument was made that the Iranians were responsible for the situation because they shot at the Vincennes helicopter and started the gunfight, which led to increased tensions that day. On August 19th, a second press conference was held to discuss the Fogarty report by Admiral William Fogarty on the incident with Flight 655. The U.S. backtracked on some of what they had said at that first press conference and admitted that 655 was squawking in Mode 3, flying within its assigned airway, and continuously ascending, but also added that Iran must share the responsibility for the tragedy by hazarding one of their civilian airliners by allowing it to fly at a relatively low altitude in close proximity to hostilities that have been ongoing. They also blamed Iran for starting the gunfight. An American sailor recalled that there were moments of celebration on board the USS Vincennes immediately after the missiles were fired and the plane was destroyed because everyone on the ship thought that they had just shot down an Iranian military plane that was threatening their ship. Once the crew realized that they had shot down a civilian airliner, the mood quickly changed. Captain Richard McKenna, surface warfare commander of the Persian Gulf, said in an interview, I can just only recollect the pall that settled in over the entire force when it started to become apparent that this was an airliner that was involved. It was just a sickening feeling, and I couldn't remember ever feeling so dismayed and depressed. In Iran, the Iranians disputed the American version of events. Many Iranians didn't see the shooting down of Flight 65 as a mistake at all. They thought it was the U.S. openly signaling that they were declaring war on Iran and joining the sign of Iraq in the Iran-Iraq War. Iranians claimed the USS Vincennes, which was outfitted with a new Aegis combat system, was trying to show off their new capabilities and decided to make Flight 655 an opportunity to showcase this new weapon system. The Iranians viewed it as a brazen attack, the shooting down of an Iranian passenger plane by a U.S. naval ship that was in Iranian territorial waters. 
The Americans refused to admit that the USS Vincennes was in Iranian territorial waters for the first four years after the incident. Iranian territorial waters were the area 12 miles from the shore, and the USS Vincennes was well within Iranian territorial waters. During the investigation after the incident, it was revealed that the Vincennes had breached Iranian territorial waters 10 times over the previous four weeks. One of the three ships in the area was the USS Sides, and the Sides commander was Commander David Carlson. Carlson was highly critical of Captain William Rogers of the Vincennes. Commander Carlson said the downing of 655 marked the horrifying climax to Captain Rogers' aggressiveness, first seen four weeks ago. Apparently, the Vincennes had taken aggressive posturing a month prior in early June 1988, engaging small Iranian gunboats, pulling up too close to an Iranian ship that was doing a legal inspection, and also launched a helicopter when too close to other Iranian ships. Commander Carlson said that he was shocked at how Rogers treated Flight 65 as a threat. To him, he saw a plane that was large, moving very slowly, ascending in the sky up to 12,000 feet, all of which flew in the face of being a threatening military plane that would have been flying fast and descending, which Flight 655 wasn't doing. Carlson said, Generally, if you had an Iranian military plane that you were worried about, you illuminated them with your fire control radar, and they'd leave. In regards to Flight 655, we illuminated them with our fire control radar, and they didn't react. Carlson added that the Vincennes was pursuing these bog hammers rather than being pursued by them. He said it was our business to provide safe passage to shipping vessels, protecting them from Iranian bog hammers, but not to provoke them. And the sad part of this whole thing, in my opinion, is the lack of taking responsibility for what happened. I view the entire affair as a gigantic screw-up. The cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder for Iran Air Flight 655 was never found. The Vincennes came home to port in San Diego to a warm, celebratory welcome. Captain William Rogers received a military award called the Legion of Merit for his service on the Vincennes. The U.S. agreed to pay Iran $131.8 million as a settlement to the victims affected by Flight 655. The U.S. never formally apologized for the incident. In November 1988, the International Civil Aviation Organization released a report of Flight 655 Enlisted as the cause of the crash, the aircraft was perceived as a military aircraft with hostile intentions and was destroyed by two surface-to-air missiles. It was misidentified because A, the flight had taken off from a joint civil-military aerodrome, B, the availability of intelligence information on Iranian F-14 deployment to Bandar Abbas and the expectation of hostile activity, C, the possibility of Iranian use of air support in the surface engagement with U.S. warships. D, the association of the radar contact with an unrelated IFF Mode 2 response. And E, the appearance of an unidentified radar contact that could not be related to a scheduled time of departure of a civil flight. Then the report goes on to mention that 655 was labeled as a F-14 when it was not. Flight 655 didn't respond to radio warnings. There was no detection of civil weather radar or radio altimeter emissions from the aircraft. There were reports of descent from sailors on the USS Vincennes, and Flight 655 was headed straight towards the Vincennes. The ICAO report made a number of safety recommendations that all revolved around better communication between military forces and civil aviation flight operations. 
Usually we have a how this made flying safer segment, and in a way this was a good lesson to sit in the back of minds of future airline pilots or military commanders that are working in areas of military conflict to reflect and make sure that they're properly identifying aircraft before engaging and pilots to make sure that they're properly identifying themselves. But more than anything, this was yet another event that brought an awful war to an end, which prevented more loss of life. The world focused on the horrors of war and pressured both Iraq and Iran to end hostilities, which ceased on August 8, 1988, one month after Flight 655. The U.S. ended Operation Ernest Will in the Persian Gulf in September 1988, a couple months after the incident with Flight 655. So, Tess, uh, did you have any thoughts when listening to the story of Flight 655 that you'd like to share? Who do you think should get the lion's share of the blame? Anything surprise you about the story? Yeah, I don't know. It kind of feels like um, Captain William Rogers had sort of had a history of being a bit aggressive in the waters. Mm-hmm. That was sort of his his um, mode that mm-hmm. he was in. And uh, it felt like he maybe didn't do his due diligence properly. Like if you have an airport that is functioning both as a military and a commercial um, airport, mm-hmm. it seems like you would want to check all your boxes and make sure that you weren't firing at a commercial airplane first. Mm -hmm. Like, wouldn't the the U.S. want to kind of rule out that possibility first? Yeah, but I think he was in a tight spot. You know, I found one of the most surprising aspects of this crash for me was that on its surface, when I first saw the information, I was expecting just to, like, feel that this was kind of the Americans' fault, which it predominantly was. They definitely shot an airliner out of the sky, gave poor information, they made some bad decisions. But I found myself actually finding some sympathy for Captain William Rogers. I feel like he only had seven minutes to gather information. He was, you know, just as the information that he had was wrong. He had people telling him that this is a military plane squawking mode too. He has people telling him that it's descending. He has in the back of his mind that the USS Stark was bombed by a jet a year prior, and it was very similar circumstances where you're radioing some jet and they're not responding. So I was actually surprised that I feel sympathy for the guy that he made a bad decision. If he made one bad decision, it was the decision to go chase these bog hammers that weren't really a big threat to him. Yes, they fired on the helicopter, but you went into Iranian waters they weren't at the moment firing on Americans. You know, maybe they would have gone away for the day. And that decision to chase the bog hammers into Iranian waters and engage them after the helicopter got out of there and was safe led to this situation. So I, I find a little bit of sympathy for him other than that bad decision. And also the sailors on the ship gave him bad information. Right. So you said that they told him it was descending. Yeah. The, the, the plane. The uh, he, on the. Uh, I must have missed ship. that. I don't know if I included in the story. Maybe I messed up. But uh, they did have people on the ship telling him that this plane is descending, that it's squawking mode two, and that they're not responding to any of our uh, radio messages. Right. And then later they say that it's in the report. They say it's squawking mode three. Right. Yes. It was said? squawking mode three all along. I think what happened was that it took off, as you mentioned earlier, from a civil and military airport, and there were military planes on the ground squawking mode two, 
And the first signal that the ship sees, that the Vincennes sees from this plane, they think is mode two, but it's probably just a military plane on the mm. ground at the airport. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I don't know. I One question I had was, um, would, would there have been a commercial radio frequency that they could have um, tried to communicate I think they through? did. Yeah, that international air distress frequency ah. is 121.5, and they got no response. They hmm. radioed them three times. Apparently, they radioed them and said, Iranian fighter. So that's got to be confusing for an Iranian commercial yeah. f- pilot because he's like, that's not me. I'm a, yeah. I'm flying for Iran Air. I'm on my way to Dubai. You must be trying to reach someone else, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it, I imagine it would have been pretty nerve-wracking being a passenger um, flying through these kind of, these waters that were so ridden with fighting and mm-hmm. tension between Maybe I think maybe Iran. they were maybe they were just desensitized to it. At that point, it had been eight years that the war had been going on, and this flight had been happening all the time. So, if if there is one thing, I think that we can, you know, feel bad as we always do criticizing anybody about anything. But uh, if there is one bad decision that was made by Captain William Rogers, it was to pursue those bog hammers. You didn't need to do that. You know, maybe at that moment in time he could have been like hey they fired some warning shots at our helicopter let's go get lunch you know we'll just leave that to another day one thing that did affect his uh judgment is that over the previous days to july 3rd the iraqis had attacked a number of iranian ships and oil platforms so everyone was kind of expecting a fierce response from the iranians possibly Mm -hmm. he got a letter saying it's almost july 4th this is you know a day highlighted for americans the Iraqis just attacked the Iranians, so they had in their mind, the Iranians are going to be after us. You know, They're mm. going to be looking for revenge, so they already kind of had this kind of antagonistic mindset or this m- mindset to be expecting conflict. Right, yeah. Um, Captain William Rogers stated in an interview, while he regretted the outcome, he would do exactly the same thing given the same set of circumstances in the future. Hmm. To me... So he stands by his decision. I don't think he's thrilled that he shot an airliner out of the sky. To me, that comment... Given the information that he had, he would have made the same choice. Yeah, but to me, I'm also thinking that's a guy trying to live with what he's done. Right. Confronting the fact that you shot a plane out of the sky and killed 290 people is probably a hard thing to do. It's, you know, probably the biggest event of his life. And he did get a bunch of poor information, but in the end, um, you know, one thing that I would like to say is that there was another commander on another American ship really close by that came to a completely different conclusion about the ship. Mm -hmm. Granted, maybe it was easier for him because the plane wasn't headed straight towards him. Maybe he would have been stressed out a little bit more if the plane was headed towards him. But he looked at the plane and said, hey, this plane is moving very slowly. Military planes generally don't move slowly. This plane is ascending, so it's probably not going to bomb anybody because it's ascending. And it's just really large. So to him, he was like, this guy is no threat. He he doesn't have the profile of an attacking military plane. Right, yeah. Well, if it's just stress that's affecting your decision, that doesn't really seem like enough of a justification. Yeah, yeah. One phrase that's often associated with this incident is uh, the psychological condition called scenario fulfillment. In the Fogarty report, this was listed as an excuse for the misreading of the data on the ship. Everyone in the combat center on the Vincennes thought that the plane was descending towards them. Data pulled from the Vincennes computer shows that Flight 655 was ascending. It was never descending. And what scenario fulfillment means is that everyone in the combat center was stressed out 
and had expectations that this plane was going to attack them. And the stress of the situation, combined with their expectations, distorted reality, causing them to ignore data that was contrary to what they expected to happen. Wow, that's really interesting. So, but how can they ignore numbers? I don't know. Just in the sec- in the moment, maybe you're just stressed out, and you're ex- you're in a gunfight with other uh, ships at sea, and then you see a plane coming straight at you, and you get information saying there's a squawk mode too, and it's still coming at you, and maybe it just kind of makes you have tunnel vision. You you see a altitude change, and for some reason you perceive it as a descending as opposed to an ascending plane. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It was reported that when the Americans finally decided that they want to shoot off these missiles at the plane, there was a delay because they incorrectly entered the launch codes 23 times. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, The Iranians gave a press conference after the downing of Flight 655 and stated that they would be retaliating in the future against the U.S. and it would be equal in measure to the crime against them. Five months after Flight 655 went down, Pan Am Flight 103 exploded above Lockerbie, Scotland, killing 279 human beings, including 190 Americans. The initial focus of the investigation of the Pan Am flight was on Libya, but the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency claimed that an Iranian parliament member paid $10 million to terrorists to bomb Pan Am Flight 103 to retaliate for the downing of Iran Air Flight 655 five months earlier. Well, Michael, we may just have to cover that flight. Yeah, at some point. I thought it was kind of shocking to learn that when evaluating everything that happened in 1987 and 1988 in the Persian Gulf between the Americans and Iran, it seems as though there was an undeclared war basically taking place. It seems like this should go down in history books as the U.S.-Iran Sea War of 1988. Yeah, definitely. George Herbert Walker Bush, the vice president of the United States, was running for president over the summer of 1988, and he said at a presidential campaign speech, I will never apologize for the United States. I don't care what the facts are. I'm not an apologize for America kind of guy. What do you think about that? Well, I would say that is an example of blind patriotism. Yeah, I think there's a misconception that apologizing for doing something wrong is a sign of weakness. To me, when you make a mistake, you should apologize. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of maturity and growth and respect. You know, I think you should take ownership of mistakes and try to right wrongs. To me, refusing to apologize doesn't make you tough. It just makes you kind of immature and foolish. Right. Yeah. I guess when the um, mistake is as big as this one, it's probably that much harder to admit fault. Yeah. I think more than anything, with this uh, flight, we can kind of apply it to other events. Like, for instance, what happened a couple of weeks ago in Iran with the Ukraine International Airlines flight, that there's a lot of complexity. You know, To me, the blame is everyone involved. To me, the Iranians had gunboats on the Persian Gulf and were shooting at Americans, and they apparently let a plane go off from a civilian and military airport and you know, didn't tell them, hey, there's a gunfight going on on the sea below you. Um, The Americans are in a ship and they chase these small gunboats. You got a billion dollar American ship and you're chasing around these small Iranian gunboats into Iranian territory. That seemed kind of foolish. Plus, let's also think about the fact that Iraq decided to invade their neighbor when their neighbor had a revolution. They set off this whole chain of events that led to this. 
One big indisputable aspect is the U.S. hid for four years that the Vincennes was in Iranian waters during the incident. Kind of seems kind of fishy to hide information. Seems like you hide information when you did something wrong. Also, the rules of engagement state that you can only fire upon someone in self-defense when you're in their territorial waters. Kind of seems like the Vincennes might have gone looking for a fight. Right, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if this is a stupid idea, but one other thought I had is be nice we have smartphones if we're going to have missiles maybe we should update them to be kind of smart missiles if a missile's headed towards a plane and it can detect you know 290 heat signatures until 290 human beings are on that plane maybe it would just like blow up before it hits the plane mm, yeah seriously we need smart missiles smart missiles get on it people <laughs> get on it elon musk well, I think that's going to do it for Flight 655. So, Tess, are you ready to hear a few stories in the world of airline news? I am, Michael. First off, Eastern Airlines is making a comeback. Tess, you remember the episode we did on Eastern Airlines Flight 401 around Halloween? I do recall that episode. Good. Well, at one time, Eastern Airlines was one of the United States' top four carriers. The airline fell on hard financial times and folded in 1991. Well, an investment group recently bought the brand name and logo and is relaunching Eastern Airlines back into the skies. Eastern Airlines planes are scheduled to start flying through the sky once again in March 2020. The plan for this airline is to focus on long-haul flights that fly to secondary markets that might have been overlooked by existing major carriers. For right now, Eastern offers just a few flights from JFK in New York to Ecuador and Guyana and will expand to China and possibly a few other markets by the end of the year. The Eastern Airlines fleet consists of eight planes, eight Boeing 767 wide-body jets. The airline also will operate charter flights for the Department of Defense and a few universities. What do you think about Eastern Airlines being back in the skies, Tess? Well, I think we're a culture that loves to be nostalgic. I am excited about it. I like retro vibes. I think that's true. This gives me hope that someday we're going to see a Pan Am or a TWA plane up in the skies again. And at the very least, we'll check into the TWA hotel. Yeah, we always got that. The Department of Transportation has proposed a ban on emotional support animals on planes. The announcement came this week that the Department of Transportation is considering whether to narrow the definition of animals allowed on planes to dogs that have received individualized training to do work or perform tasks for a person with a disability. Apparently, this means pigs, rabbits, horses, cats. All animals that are not dogs won't be allowed in the main cabin of planes if this rule change takes place. Additionally, airlines will have to decide whether they'll allow emotional support dogs or not. They can choose not to do so. They won't be forced by the government to accommodate if they do choose not to. Tess, we touched upon this last episode. Apparently, airlines are seeing more and more animals on planes 480,000 pets flew as emotional support animals in 2016, and then 751,000 pets flew in 2017. That's almost a 300,000 pet increase in one year. So it seems like the government is trying to step in to keep this number from growing out of control. What do you think, Tess? Do you support this change, or do you want more animals on planes? Well, I guess I'm wondering, so the government's cracking down on this. Do you think that airlines will follow suit? I think airlines are going to be given the choice whether they want to accommodate emotional support animals or not. They have no choice but to accommodate a service dog. There just hasn't been definitive language saying a service dog is only a dog 
that helps somebody with an actual disability. People have been able to have this whole umbrella of, I need emotional support, so let me bring my dog, and airlines kind of have to do this. So this is the government trying to update the language, put the ball in the court of airlines and say, do what you want to do. If you want to allow emotional support dogs, you can do that. If not, you don't have to. Right, so I guess I'm just saying, do you think airlines like JetBlue or Delta will actually prohibit emotional support you know, dogs. I don't know. I'm not there on the ground. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I thought about it and I think it would be nice if they just had dog friendly flights. Like when you go to book your flight, maybe once a week on a common route that an airline offers, they'll just call it a service dog or emotional support dog friendly flight. So people that don't have an emotional support dog kind of have a heads up that you might see some dogs on here. People that want an emotional support dog know for sure that they can get their dog on the plane. I think that might be an easy way to deal with it. I personally, if I get on a plane and there's a bunch of dogs, I'm like, cool. Yeah, totally. I would fly on that plane. But some people are allergic to that and some people don't like it. And I think they deserve a little bit of consideration as well. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. I think I'm, I'm coming from a place of, if I'm being perfectly honest, my dog is... I'll just say it, a registered emotional support dog. Yeah. I don't, so I, that's where I'm coming from. I just don't know if dogs need to be bi-coastal, really. Well, <laughs> if I can't be, seems like human my dog be- will be. Seems like human beings, you know, existed for a long period of time without needing to fly our dogs back and forth throughout the uh, world. So I think that airlines could take some steps to make it easier for people to do that if they choose to, though, and uh, give other people a warning that that's coming. Yeah, I mean, if there was an option to pay extra to have your dog in the main cabin, I would happily take that option. I think it's just when you feel like you don't have any options, that the the only option is to put your dog down below. Yeah, but other people that don't have dogs, they deserve the kind of flight that they're paying for as well. So they just put up, this is a dog-friendly flight. You can know, I'm not going to book that if I don't you know, want to be around dogs and people that do have dogs can be comfortable. So Delta announced that they had passed all competitors to land the title of world's largest airline in regards to revenue in 2019. Delta brought in a whooping $27 billion in 2019. That's billion with a B. Delta also announced that they will be sharing a large chunk of this dough with their employees via their profit sharing program. Delta employs 90,000 employees and will be paying out $1.9 billion to their employees on Valentine's Day. Anyone out there know how I can get hired by Delta Pronto? I was just going to say the same thing. Preferably before Valentine's Day. Drafting a cover letter right now. (laughs) Delta's net income rose 21% in 2019 to $4.8 billion. While many of Delta's competitors, Southwest, American, United, all had to deal with Boeing MAX 8 issues in their fleet, Delta never purchased any of those planes, and thus the airline was headache-free for 2019. So life is looking pretty sweet for Delta these days, eh, Tess? gorgeous, untouchable Delta. I can sense a difference. The last couple Delta flights I'm on, their uh, flight attendants are so attentive and kind and say hello, and the planes are clean. Um, out of everywhere I flew last year, whether it was Southwest, Delta, American, United, I feel like JetBlue and Delta were the two that kind of stood above the pack. Yeah, Delta has always kind of struck me as a very prestigious airline. And not to mention, it, it does, um, the latest Bachelor is hails from Delta Airlines. He's a pilot yeah, on Delta. Nice. I would I know I've nothing about this that. Before, but <laughs> <laughs> I just keep trying to drill it into your head. Yep. I definitely sent some good energy. I think also that's a good uh, sign of what happens when you have a profitable company and you give a good chunk of your, the change to your employees. 
You get happy employees that feel invested in the outcome of the business, so they're happy to show up to work and do a good job. Yeah. Good business begets happy employees. Yeah. Lastly, JetBlue announced that they will be the first U.S. airline carrier to purchase carbon offsets for all domestic flights. Starting in July, JetBlue will fund projects to conserve forest land, capture landfill gas, and develop renewable energies. JetBlue will also use sustainable fuel in their jets that leave San Francisco Airport. Does this make you feel good, Tess? Yeah, we should change the name to Jet Green. I like that. That's that's really good. <laughs> they should have an offshoot of that. I love JetBlue. I hope I'm on a JetBlue plane in the near future. The last couple times I've flown with them, the flight attendants have given me a free glass of red wine. That's because you're such a flirt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the way to my heart is free wine. Well, I'm grabbing a bottle then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. Thanks again to Tess Andrade for being on the pod. You were uh, pleasant as always. Tess, you want to say anything to the people before we take off? Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. It was great as always. And don't forget to write us some reviews. We read every single review. We're obsessed. Yes, it's the only thing that gives me joy in life is meeting you people and uh, giving us a kind review. Literally, he lights up when he sees reviews. (laughs) (laughs) It's pathetic, really. Um, We're on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod if you want to say hello. I hope you're all having an amazing 2020 Since it's January and the holidays are behind us, we're all back to work or back in school. And I was thinking maybe right now is an excellent time for you to book a trip for later this year. Ooh, okay. Give yourself something exciting to look forward to. Japan. I feel like work is a little less stressful and daunting when there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Something on the calendar a few months down to daydream about. And you deserve it. So work hard, book a ticket, enjoy the majesty of flight, take care of yourselves and each other. I'm going to try and get you a new episode ASAP. I love you guys. Talk to you soon.